you open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1? Born a child and yet a king. Is there any better news of salvation or gift from God than what we have in the Gospel? There's, there's nothing greater than that. John, chapter 1. I guess I should get there, too. Just going to miss these Christmas carols, you guys. You might see them coming up in April or something. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. It's good stuff, right? We're in John, and we're looking at the prologue to John's gospel. First 18 verses. We're coming to the end of it this week. Kind of a funny thing to kind of feel like we're ending the Christmas season a little bit before Christmas even comes, but that's sort of the weird space to live in um, when it comes to church services and that kind of thing. And for me, it's, it's felt like these past two years of Christmas seasons have gone so quickly because I, for me, at least, I feel like I've had to keep my head in the next week or week and a half. And before I know it, it's gone. And so Boy, I know that there is a struggle in many of us to slow down this season and, and even to want to slow down, right? I mean, we're all ready for 2020 to be over, right? Right? Yeah. And yet we have no reason to think 2021 is going to be any better. I mean, seriously, who knows? I think the story of the Bible is that things get worse before they get better. I don't know, maybe 2021 will be better then in that sense. All right, are you there? In John chapter 1, this morning we're reading verses 14 through 18. I encourage you to open up your Bibles and look along with me as I read. Um, this is the most important thing we're going to do all day, not just in our worship service, but in that we are hearing from God's Word. So let's go ahead and do that together. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's bow our heads together and pray and ask for the Lord's help now. Lord, help us as we take a moment to fix our eyes on you, to be attentive to your word now, not to the words of a man, but to the word of God. Help us to sift out what we need to focus on in these next minutes. Apply the truth of your word to our hearts that we might magnify Christ. Open up the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to behold you this morning. I imagine that for many of us that might be challenging because our eyes are set all over the place in different things on our physical realm, but we ought to look to you now. Not just because you are worthy, though you are, and that is the greatest reason, but Lord, it is truly what we need. There's no one greater. There's no greater message that we could receive today 
in something from your word, wherever it may be. And today, it just so happens to be in one of my favorite places in the Bible. The beginning of the gospel. That you sent us your son. And in the mystery of your will, you sent us a child, a baby. A wonderful truth. What a great thing for us to behold. Help us now for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one last time, our theme for Advent this year revolves around these four words coming out of the first 18 verses of John. And they are live, believe, receive, and this week, behold. Hopefully you've seen that in the beginnings and, and throughout to the end of our passage this morning, that we want to behold Christ, the glory of God at Christmas time. And all of these messages have sort of ended with that at Christmas time, not just for having a succinct sermon series, but because we want to try to be thinking about the truth of God's word here in our, 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 our seasonal context. That's why we went to the Gospel of John, because right now people are thinking about Christmas. And maybe they're thinking too much about what we talked about this morning, a guy in a red suit. Maybe they're thinking too much about parties or about time off from work or about gifts or even maybe too much about music, if that's possible. I love music. And truly, I love all those things. Maybe you do too. Maybe, maybe your struggle looks something like mine, though, in the busyness and the hectic nature of the Christmas season and wondering how we might be able to scrape something together of what our tradition usually looks like this year. I wonder if you have stopped beholding Christ. It's, it's hard. It, it's, it's one of those things, again, where in preparing a message, I'm faced from the get-go with the fact that I ought to be doing this kind of thing throughout the preparation time. And yet with a week like this past one, I don't know how in the world I could say, I spent a week beholding Christ. It's not easy. And it wouldn't be any easier if your job was simply to read the scriptures every day. Maybe it would to some extent, obviously, but it doesn't mean that the, the trial or the temptation or the difficulties of life are not still very present. This is not for me to, you know, have a pity party, but just to say that there is a reality that we all face and that is that we often turn our eyes to other things besides Christ. That we do not behold the glory of Christ. And when it comes to Christmas, there are so many other elements to it. But it's very easy to even somehow drown out a baby. Much of my past week has involved crying babies in the middle of the night. And I would love to figure out a way to drown that out. just can't do it. And yet somehow, when it comes to this baby... It's not so hard for us to forget about him, is it? So have you given up observing Christmas? Or perhaps given up on part of it? Or perhaps given up on part of your hope for Christmas this season? Maybe this is just a normal thing. Maybe there's nothing special about your, your sort of uh, negative perspective about the season. And, and maybe this is just every year, Christmas Day just becomes a letdown. And I'll tell you, that's where I find myself so often as I get closer and closer to Christmas. I get super excited at the beginning. And then as it gets closer and closer to the 25th, I realize this all is going to be over one of these days. And I know Christmas is not going to offer me from a worldly stance everything that it promises of comfort and joy and peace and all those things that are all those words that are hijacked 
by society and tried to put forth. And, and you know, this year especially, people really want to take these words. They really want to run into them. Some people who have, have never put up their Christmas trees early had them up as soon as Halloween was over this year. There's a hunger and a longing in our world for comfort and joy to behold something of beauty why at eight o'clock every night I go out to my front yard and make sure I plug in my goofy little Christmas tree in the reindeer that sits in my front yard so that there's something nice to look at when people drive by. But Christmas day, the Christmas season can be such a letdown. And there's nothing in the Bible that says we have to celebrate Christmas. We know this, right? But it would seem to me that Christmas time should be a time when the church shines out the glory of Christ. It should be one of the best platforms for us to stand on and proclaim what Christmas is all about. To have that, uh, that moment, that Charlie Brown moment where we can stand up and say, I can tell you what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. You guys all have seen that, right? This year, a few times. We watched it like four times or whatever. It's so funny to me, people talking about it not being on TV, and I'm like, how do you not own that? How have you not watched it so many times already? <laughs> it's so good. What we need to do today, we need to behold God from his word. And we need to uh, have some sense of endurance in that, some sense of continuing and beholding God's word as we go about our Christian life so that when opportunities come to display the glory of God, we've ha we have already spent time beholding the glory of God. And that is what the truth of God's word tells us today. We're going to behold the word become flesh in this passage, this wonderful truth that we've been building towards. And I don't know if you've done any extra study, if you've been doing the um, John chapter 1 challenge for the month of December, um, if you've taken any time in a study Bible or whatever, one fun thing that you can do is look into the chiasm of verses 1 through 18. And notice how John puts this all together in such a way that, in, in a poetic fashion, that it, it you see these truths repeated, and yet as they're repeated, they're also being built upon. And so as we come to this last section, we're seeing some similarities with the beginning. Because this is, again, where he has mentioned the word. In the beginning was the word, verse 1 says. And now we come all the way down to verse 14, and that's where we see the word again. And that word who was in the beginning became flesh. Don't sleep on that truth today, church. The word became flesh. The God who created became a part of his creation. Our jaws should be on the floor about that. What, how do you even do that? And what does it all mean? And why? And all sorts of questions should come to our minds. But ultimately, beholding Christ's incarnation, that act of becoming a part of his creation, reveals the glory and the abundance of God's grace and truth towards his people. Do you know that you know people, I promise you, you know people who don't know Jesus and are terrified of God? Terrified. Even if they say they believe, well, hey, God loves everybody and we're all his children and everybody's going to go to heaven because I believe in a good God who wouldn't ever send someone to hell. There are people that we know who are terrified of God. Can you imagine? I hope that doesn't characterize your relationship with Christ. But could you imagine for a second if you just lived day by day in fear of God? Maybe you do. 
I hope that something that comes out of today is the idea of the closeness of God and that as we consider beholding his glory and we could compare it to other passages where, where others have been given visions of the glory of God and we'll look at Moses in a little bit but you might be thinking even of Isaiah chapter 6 and how Isaiah just saw the, the train of his robe filling the temple filling the throne room and just, just sitting there thinking I've seen God and I'm going to die woe is me I am undone What John tells us today is the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He stepped down from his throne, people. We have seen his glory, glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The great news of the gospel begins with the fact, not that we have a way to make our way up to God, but that he has come to us. The incarnation is the word adding humanity to his godly nature. And the incarnation is the word laying aside all the privileges of being God in order to serve humanity. In his birth, Jesus became what he never was before. He wasn't just another human sitting up in heaven waiting for his time to come down. In this mysterious action, he becomes a a fetus. He becomes a small child in in the womb of Mary and and goes through the whole experience of life from, from, uh, from birth to death and then to resurrection, bringing new life. He becomes what he has never been before, a part of his creation. And it becomes the act of God's glory, not only revealed to us, but brought down to us, sharing in a face-to-face relationship that had only been, until until now, enjoyed by the Trinity. Look back at John chapter 1, verse 1, which we've done a lot in these past few weeks. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And remember, in that little word, with, there is this beautiful truth of a face-to-face, constantly perfect, never an argument, never a disagreement, loving relationship between the Father and the Son. And now what do we see today? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He has brought down that relationship with God to his creation. And we'll see what that looks like. But there are two unique qualities of this glory that's being beheld. First is that it is of the only Son of the Father. In such closeness, we find an undeniable and a totally foreign kind of glory. This is not in a glory even of an achievement yet. He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. The, the people who began to follow him in chapter 1, they didn't know what he was going to do. They simply knew who he was. Of course, they would find out what he came to do, right? But even at this point, there is glory, not in, in an achievement, but in his essence, in who he actually is. In one sense, God needs to do nothing to display his glory to us. In another sense, God chooses to give everything in order to display his glory to us. And this happens, this starts with the incarnation. John explains that the glory that he saw is that which was given to the Son by the Father. So there's already gift giving going on in chapter one. And, and this is not to say that Jesus didn't have glory until he received it, but the nature of the relationship between the father and the son is such that the father gives his glory to his son and has always given his glory to his son. And this action signifies that though in weeks prior, we looked at and saw in verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
Jesus doesn't just be, he's not called or counted among the children of God. He is called the son of God, the only son of God. Contrasted and set apart from those who receive the right to become children of God and yet unified with them as well. But he is unique. He's not the first of all creation to become a child, but he's set apart as God himself and with God himself. This is not something that we're meant to understand. This is a mystery, but it's a glorious mystery. We're called to behold it this morning and find in it the things that we've talked about, life, faith, and gifts of great grace. This word only, again, contrasts him from everything else, making him completely unique. And in that uniqueness, we find that he in his glory is full of grace and truth. And he did not come hiding that grace and truth. Though there are times that you read in the Gospels, and you'll remember, I hope, that uh, there were times where he would heal people and he would say, don't tell anyone what happened to you yet. Because he had a plan. There was a plan for him to reveal himself to the world, right? Uh, to, to stand on a stage and say, this is who I am. And he did it. But in his beginnings, he began by doing these miracles for individuals, and I think there's something so special about that because we gather together as a church, but we ought not be lost in the midst of each other and just think, I'm just another fish in one of these ponds with all the other fish. God made you and he loves you. And you are special to him, just like everyone else. It's meant as a sort of joke, but at the same time, it's true, right? We are all uniquely made in the image of God. And when he redeems us, he does not simply, you know, dump salvation across a group of people. But we each have been given a unique story of where we have come to have new life in him. Where we could say, this is where I first believed in Christ. And this is where I received that great grace of salvation in him. And we can, day by day, behold that glory of God. And this is what we are called to behold, behold, grace and truth. Not something that was hidden, not something that we had to earn, but something that was poured out. He says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. That doesn't just mean that grace and truth were in him, but the completion of and the perfection of all grace, all unmerited favor, all goodness to the undeserving, and all truth was in Jesus Christ. And we are called to receive him. And then we come to verse 15. And here's John the Baptist interrupting this glorious incarnation doctrine again. Can you believe this guy? Do you remember when he showed up last time? We read through that first section our first week. and we're like, Wow, this is great. And then verse 6, John the evangelist, the writer, says, there was a man sent from God. His name was John. He wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness to the light so that everyone would believe in him. I'm like, boy, John just keeps coming up here. And here he is in verse 15. John bore witness about him. Uh, in your Bibles, you probably notice almost every translation puts this in parentheses, right? So at least we have that. <laughs> now, I'm being facetious here. Obviously, John the evangelist intends to put John the Baptist inserted into these moments on purpose. And so look at verse 15 again. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. This is the same John who in a few verses in verse 29 will say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His whole purpose, we read in verses 6 through 8, was to come as a witness to bear witness about the light. He is a testifier. And 
boy, if, if, you, if you think that Christianity is just about us understanding and studying the word and, and just being in it all the time, that's true. But if we think that's it and there's not a, a proclamation that comes after this beholding, then we totally miss what even John has been pointing out to us twice over now. John bore witness about him. So ought we. In John 3, 26 through 30, we see John's mission complete. And I'm jumping ahead here on purpose because I think that we ought to see why John the Baptist keeps uh, getting thrown in here. So look, just move a chapter ahead, two chapters ahead to chapter 3 and uh, follow along at verses 26 through 30. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, these are some of his disciples, by the way, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John had no problem transitioning from his ministry to the ministry of Jesus. And his disciples came to him and said, John, he's doing, he's copying off of us. He's doing the same thing. And John's like, duh, that's the whole point. That's why I came. And, and then he, has, he gives us, again, this, con, you know, this confusing sounding timeline that we see in 15. He, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. But what does all this mean? It means that he who comes after him in the literal timeline of the story of the gospel, then he, he says, so that's the first one. He comes after me. That's just a literal timeline. That's all it means. John says that sequentially there's a difference between us, but qualitatively there is a massive gulf. It is not just simply a different ministry. We're talking about a totally different animal here completely other, totally set apart. I am not the light. I am just bearing witness to the light. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And truly, John the Baptist, theologians say, it sort of sums up the whole of the Old Testament, that everything in the Old Testament points us and moves us forward to Jesus. It's not to say that the Old Testament is, is, is secondary to the New Testament, but that it is really setting the scene and, and showing us what is to come and what we truly need in him. Preparing room for what is greater. In this, in, in thinking about the Old Testament, we should also be thinking again in this verse 14, moving back up. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the same word that, that is used in Greek for tabernacle. And so even, even John here is, is hearkening back to the Old Testament again to say that all of the other methods that God has used to express and be present with his people on earth, they were all good. But ultimately, they were just signs of what Jesus was going to come to do. You think of the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, or the tab tabernacle, ooh, tabernacle or the temple, all temporary and with some degree of separation, right? We see in the garden that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Well, what does all of that mean? I don't really know specifically, but there's at least some distinction made there, right? He walked with them in the cool of the day. There's some kind of condition. 
And then you come to the tabernacle and the temple, and you literally have curtains and separation. You can't just go wherever you want and talk to God however you want, whenever you want. And yet what Christ has done in the incarnation is he has come and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. There's no hiding. Jesus didn't walk around with a curtain in front of his face. He was there with them, and they were beholding his glory just simply being with him. And if you remember, when Jesus talks about sending the Holy Spirit to us, he says, I'm going to go away, but it's good for me to go away, because then I can send the Holy Spirit to you. So again, it's that simple point of just saying, boy, how cool it would be to live in the gospel times and see Jesus face to face. That would be really cool. The Bible says we have something greater in the indwelling Holy Spirit in the lives of every believer. Something we need to behold. Something we need to embrace with confidence and with hope this Christmas season. But what's our problem with this? Why is it that we don't do that? Well, we don't behold Christ, and apart from the eyes of faith, we cannot behold Christ. Why? What's getting in our way? If you're not looking at one thing, it's because you're looking at something else. We're not talking about physically here, but it could be that. But, but the orientation of our hearts are geared towards other things. And Christmas, again, as great of a platform as it is for ministry, it's also a great platform for self-examination. What am I beholding? What am I adoring? Too often, we think that beholding is meant to be a momentary glance. And some of the things that we even do in our Christian life might, might almost lead us to believe that. Come to church for about an hour, behold Christ, and then get back into the real world. Church, you need to behold Christ every day. You need to take every moment that you possibly can to look to him. And over time, I think what happens is you start to realize that even that moment where you remind yourself, Christ is with me, there is a greater deepening weight of glory that comes with that. I tell my daughter, Jesus is with you when she's, saying she's scared, she doesn't want to go to bed, and the lights are off, and I turn the hallway light off, and we go through that whole routine every night. I tell her, Jesus is with you. And she goes, yeah, okay. I don't see him. I don't hear him. But as we grow in our Christian walk, we see the effects of what he's done. We have that inner witness of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, confirming to us that we are indeed the children of God, that we've been given that great right to become his Rather than a lifestyle of worship, we imagine our, our acts of worship as temporary things, as just simply moments. And the incarnation tells us that we do not simply need to meet with Jesus, we need to abide with Jesus, we need to dwell with him. He has come to dwell in us, his people. And so we cannot simply set up an appointment to meet with Jesus. He goes with us wherever we go. So the question this morning then is, do you see Jesus? Are you beholding his majesty? Are you looking at other things? And remember, again, those other things, they're not always necessarily bad things. But when we let them take our attention away from Christ, we suffer great loss because we're not looking at the one who is all satisfying, the author of life and the redeemer of his people. The incarnation is the setup and reminder for us to behold his glory. From, from the beginning, from the, the, the little story of, of him coming and being born in a stable, all the way to him dying on a cross and rising again. We are called to behold his great glory. And we're called to do it together, too. 
That's why we gather in the morning to, to sing and to pray and to look at his word and to fellowship with one another. It's hard to live the Christian life on your own. And if you're here, I can tell you, God is not calling you to live the Christian life on your own because you're here with other believers. And with all of that, we are called not only to endure through this and to abide and to dwell with Christ, but we are called to display what we are beholding in Christ. So just wonder, what is this problem? Why is it that I don't bear witness like John the Baptist did in verse 15? Why is it that I struggle so much to even talk about Jesus with people who I know know that I'm a Christian? The problem is not with them. There's no resistance. I mean, yeah, there's resistance, but there's nothing unique or something that is overpowering the witness of Christ in me. I think my problem is, is that I'm not doing these kinds of things. I'm not letting my life be in Christ. I'm not building up my holy faith as Jude talks about. I'm not receiving grace upon grace as John writes about here. And I'm not taking time to simply behold him, to just take that face-to-face glance at who he is. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. No one is given an insufficient amount of grace. We're given different trials, right? And we're given trials that match up. We're given grace that match up with the trials that the Lord brings into our lives. But none of us are given insufficient grace for whatever it is that we're facing. It's not as though Jesus looks at some people and says, I'm going to equip them better than I'm going to equip them. Paul talks about us being baptized into, into one Savior, into one salvation, one gospel. We are united in Christ. And therefore, there is not something that one person has that another person needs in order to do what God calls them to do. We work together, right? And we should benefit from the fellowship of being on mission together. But John tells us from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. You don't just get one layer of grace, right? You're getting layers of grace upon grace upon grace. Now, there's a lot of interpretations about this passage, and there are two that I want to share with you. And one is this first idea of just simply saying that this is abounding grace. We can't measure grace person to person, but we can look to the one who is handing out that grace and see what is their habit, how is it that they like to uh, pour, you know, give grace to, to, to their people. This is God we're talking about, and he does not just simply sprinkle a little bit of grace into your life. Now, if you ever go to Subway or Chipotle, this sounds like such a bad transition, I'm sorry, but the illustration's coming to my mind, so bear with me, please. You go there, and you kind of can tell that the worker is not really interested in making you a good sandwich or burrito. Like, they're not really passionate like you are about this lunch that you're about to have. And, you know, you get to that point where you're, like, really excited about the steak or the sour cream or whatever it is. And they, you know, they give you the dollop and you look at it and you go, okay. And then you kind of go through that whole thing of, like, do I be that guy that says, could I have a little more of this or more of that? Struggle's real. Um, We ought not put that picture on God. We ought not think that just because Tuesday didn't go very well for us, we didn't read the Bible, we didn't spend time in prayer, or we, you know, we, we acted like our old selves in such and such a way. 
Jesus is going to be skimpy with giving us grace. Grace is given to all. I don't know how else to explain this, but for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. No one is left out. Grace is poured out in great measure to his church. The second interpretation of this, and, and looking at it more grammatically in this phrase, grace upon grace, uh, Don Carson says that, in looking in the context as well, that this idea of grace upon grace is to say that in verse 17, we have the law that was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He would equate that with saying that this first layer of grace is like the law. And the law is given to us for what purpose? Paul says in Galatians that the law comes to us as a tutor or a guardian to lead us to Christ. And so this grace upon grace format and and grammatically what, what may be being done here is to say that there is a replacement of grace now. We are no longer under the law, but we are in Christ We're no longer in Adam, we're in Christ. We're no longer under the law, we're now under grace. And yet grace, or yet the law was actually a grace in and of itself. It was was God saying, hey, I could just leave you all out here to guess what I expect of you, but I'm not going to. I mean, yeah, the law reveals sin, but that is a grace in our lives. That's what the Holy Spirit does, right? And maybe if we're feeling like, I have an insufficient amount of grace, or I'm, I'm lacking in this one thing, or I feel like maybe God just doesn't really care so much about me right now. It's probably just simply due to the fact that we are not beholding his glory and seeing him for who he is. We need to know what God does. We also need to know who he is. He is one who gives grace upon grace to everyone. Go to Exodus 33 with me, if you will, as we start to wrap up here. The law was fulfilled by Christ. Now he shows us our need for him by coming and dwelling among us. And then John says in verse 18 of chapter 1, keep going to Exodus if you're looking for that, you're doing the right thing. In the end in verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Well, Maybe when you read that, you think, wait a second, I can think of somebody who saw God, or sort of. And that would be Moses. So look at Exodus 33, 18 through 23 with me. And then we'll look at something in 34. Moses said, please show me your glory. Maybe you need to make that your prayer this week. Just lean into that phrase. And what Moses is going to get in answer to this prayer request is nothing like what we, we get now in Christ. Jumping ahead. Let's keep going here. Please show me your glory. Verse 19, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What a wonderful, sweet promise to Moses. And his, his cry of just simply longing to see God, to see his glory, to be more present with the Lord. The Lord gives him these means of doing so, though they're nothing like what John says in chapter 1. He makes this promise to him. Now scoot down to 34, 7, and 8, and 9. <clears throat> 
34. I think I need six. Sorry, 34, six. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. What happens when you behold the glory of God? How do I know if I've really beheld the glory of God? Does worship happen? Is the result of seeing him, you quickly bowing your head to the earth and worshiping him? It doesn't have to be that literally, but is there the sense that your spiritual posture has changed because you've seen something of who he is? This is what happened to Moses. And yet, go back to John Verse 18, read it again. No one has ever seen God. Not even Moses got to see God. He just got to see where God passed by. And what what happened when Moses came down from the mountain, he had to put a a sheet over his face so that people weren't blinded by the glory that reflected, reflected off of God and was displayed through the face of Moses. And yet John says in verse 14, we have seen his glory out of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, that is Jesus, the word mentioned in 1.1, the only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. The father's side sounds like maybe we're standing in line, you know, lined up in a formal fashion. Literally what this is talking about is the bosom of the father being close to him. Again, face to face, but in an embrace of between the father and the son. And this is what he brings to us. Something greater than what Moses had. Boy, it would have been cool to be Moses, right? Way cooler to be a Christian. Way more amazing. Far more to behold. The actual God of the universe has come to make his dwelling among us. And we have seen that glory. We haven't seen him in person, but we have his word. We have his spirit living inside of us. And again, Jesus says in the Gospel of John later on, it's better for me to go so that the Holy Spirit can come. So we can't look at this and say, this doesn't really apply to me. It's the apostles seeing Jesus in person. Yeah, it is them seeing him in person. But the glory is no different. It's the same glory. The the psalmist says that God has exalted above all else his name and his word. And we have the full revelation of his word to us. We have access to him in prayer. We have the church to be in fellowship with and live on mission with. We have everything that we need. We have grace upon grace. You just need to open your eyes and see it. What Moses wanted to see, we behold in Christ perfectly. He's the one who is at the Father's side, and he has brought us into that kind of relationship. In John 14, 9, um, thinking about this idea of making the Father known, uh, zooming ahead to the Last Supper, uh, Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and still you don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Well, there's a distinction between the Father and the Son, right? We saw that in John 1, 1. He was with God, and he was God. But when you see Jesus, you see the very same substance of who God the Father is. You see the perfect display of who the Father is in the person of Jesus Christ because they are united. 
And this is what Jesus has come to do. Because Christ has come, we now are able to know the Father. And there's some really practical need for that. We need to behold the glory of what Christ has done and understand this theological truth because some of you don't pray to the Father. You simply pray to God. And it's not wrong to say, dear God, at the beginning of your prayer and then say what you want to say to him. But there's something that we miss when we don't pray to our Father. Because when we pray to our Father, we're first of all doing what Jesus called us to do, right? Because he says in the Lord's Prayer that he gives to us, he says, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, etc. Again, I'm not saying in a legalistic fashion, only pray to the Father. But take time to be intentional about it. Pray to the Father. Acknowledge how he wants to relate to you. He is God. He is the judge of the universe, the creator of all. But he has come to dwell among you. And Jesus has come to bring you into relationship with God the Father perfectly, just as he is. It's so important to do that. So today I want to give you just one last resolution here. I need to do whatever it takes to get a fresh view of the glory of Christ today, tomorrow, the next day, for the rest of my life. I need to take the time. I need to make necessary steps. Have you considered the Bible reading plan? I know it almost is turning into like the same joke that the prayer calendar is that, you know, I'm going to talk about it all throughout the announcements, but it is a means for you to behold the glory of Christ and to do it with other believers. And when we catch that view of the glory of Christ, we need to plead with the Lord that he might display in us what we have beheld in him. And let Christmas time, springtime, wintertime, whatever it is, be the time that we display the glory of God as we behold him face to face. Particularly at Christmas time, we talk about the light of life that came so that we might live in Christ. We talk about the God who speaks, calling us to believe in Christ. We talk about the Redeemer who has come to make children of God out of all who will receive him. We talk about the glorious word who has come that we might behold the glory of God. Much to consider this Christmas season, and I hope that your week ahead is full of joy and family time. Whatever it is that you, your soul longs for, I I hope that this week presents that to you. But I hope that when the week is over, that you still set your eyes on Christ. And in perhaps that feeling of, of, oh, of dissatisfaction or I wish that it would go on or, you know, I got to take my Christmas decorations down as soon as I possibly can, you would not forget the truth of Christ coming at Christmas and that you would, as Ebenezer Scrooge said, would carry that on throughout the year. I know that many of you want to have that fresh view of the glory of God in Christ. You don't need to work for it. You can't produce it. But you need to behold him in worship as you go about your regular, your regular daily life. Be reminded that the word came to dwell with you. He is with you. There's never a time where he leaves or forsakes his people. A couple questions. Have you considered the reading plan? Do you have someone you can spend time with in prayer and in the word regularly? Do you have a mission field, be it your work, your neighborhood, your family? The world could really benefit from our committed time beholding the Lord right now. The world could really benefit from those who would display the glory of God that they've beheld in him. Does the fact that you know the Father affect the world that you live in? Does it make a difference? 
because it really ought to. Okay, so I'm going to read you uh, Spurgeon's, Charles Spurgeon's conversion story. So just take a minute here uh, because this, this, uh, this is cool. I don't know, maybe you've read it. So hopefully it'll just be an, a reminder and encouragement for you. Spurgeon was 15 years old when he was converted on January 6th, which is kind of like the end of Christmas time. So it fits what we're talking about here. He went to a small Methodist church because there was a terrible snowstorm. He couldn't go to where he was intending to go. And this is what he wrote in 1850, or about 1850. He said, I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning, snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. Boy, I can resonate with that, man. Whew. The text was from Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Well, that does not take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. I, said he in broad voice, many of you are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me. Look to me. When we had gotten about the length, and managed to spend about, about 10 minutes, he was at the length of his tether. Then he looked at me under the galley, gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He then said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death. If you do not obey my text, but if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Christ. There and then the cloud was gone, Spurgeon says. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. In a moment, Spurgeon was transferred from death into life given new life in Christ, receiving grace. If you haven't received that, you can just as simply. Christ died and rose again so that we could have this new life because our sins earned us death eternally, but his gift is life and love and light in Christ. And if you know Christ, but you're feeling perhaps a little bit like what Spurgeon described himself here as, as being miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death. Obey the text. Look to Christ. Behold his glory. Receive grace upon grace and display what you have beheld.
Will you pray with me? Our Father, this morning, we carry our texts in our minds with heaviness in thinking of our inability to see you rightly on our own. But as we come to the text, we recognize that you have given us the eyes of faith so that we can see you clearly, so that we can receive the grace and truth that comes from the glory of your light. Lord, would you reveal your glory to us in each moment, Lord, in each moment that we come to you. Because sometimes when we come to our open Bibles, when we come to prayer, when we come to church, when we come to Bible study, we are just not feeling it. We're not interested. We're distracted. We're weighed down by other things. Lord, do what you promise, please. For your glory, show us your glory, that we might behold you in spirit and in truth and receive grace upon grace and display that great, great, great grace. Testify to what Christ has done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.